0: The goal of today is, is a little bit different than normal. We, uh, we started a brand new series, it's called True and Better. And as Ben said, since we're going into a, uh, a new season now, since we're going into the Advent season, and we're all kind of looking toward and preparing for the coming of Christ, then what we want to do over these next kind of four weeks is do the same thing. Um, when Jack and I were talking about the, uh, the sermon series for Advent, Um, Jack had an outstanding idea. He said, why don't we do that same thing by looking through the Old Testament? And so today, and over the next three weeks, four weeks, until Christmas Eve, obviously Christmas Eve will be about Jesus. um, But over the next four weeks or so, we're going to be preparing and looking towards and looking for the coming Savior, the coming Messiah... ...through the lenses of the Old Testament. And so we've picked four different stories um, in the Old Testament. Today is Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. Um, And we'll be going through these for the next four weeks. And the goal is, as we're going through these the next four weeks... ...is to prepare our hearts and push our hearts towards Jesus. Um, But even more so, which you may have picked up through the video... ...is to try to show you how these stories in the Old Testament... ...are not just kind of stories in and of themselves and end and kind of terminate just through the story. Like today with Abraham and Isaac, it's about a man who has a son, and etc., etc. But the main thing that we want you to see as we go through this whole series is how all these Old Testament stories are really about Jesus. Um, And how they, in some ways, all these stories prefigure or, or kind of give a shadow of the real thing, which is Christ. That's why the name of the series is True and Better. Christ is the true and better of all the things that we're going to talk about. So the goal of today is to show you um, how that this particular text is about Christ, more so than just about Abraham and Isaac, and really the whole the whole sermon series will be doing that. And so um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 22, and we'll be in there. Um, what I want to do is read the, the kind of the whole narrative for you so we can all get a uh, kind of a good bearing on what's going on in the text in case you're not familiar with this story at all. And then we'll, we'll go back and kind of go through it. And there's four different things I want you to see in the text. So let's all stand and I'll, and I'll read Genesis 22, um, starting at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. And he took it and he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to fear or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not Withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord Oh, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, My son, I have, because, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring will, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham now lived in Beersheba. We can stop there. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for another Sunday that we can gather together as a church and worship together and be together and be the body together, sharing gifts together. And we pray that as we look at this text, and the gospel is remarkably clear in here, that we would all unitedly... um, Put our trust and faith in the provision of Christ for us on the cross. I pray that um, for those that don't know Christ this morning, that as they hear the gospel, it would be uh, true to them. It would be real to them. They would understand it, Lord. And that they would believe in Christ and what he's done for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So, you see in verse 14, the big main idea of the entire section. In verse 14, when Abraham names the section, the Lord will provide, that's really the main idea here for us. So there's four things that I want you to see as we look, kind of understanding the aspects of God's provision here, really in the text, but at large, um, there's four key things that I want you to see. Uh, so before we jump in, let's just kind of stop and ask this one question, because it's kind of the big, huge, uh, as Seinfeld would say, matzo ball, just kind of stick in there, um, which is this. How could God ask a father to offer up his son? How could that happen? How could God, how could someone who is supposedly supposed to be um, good and um, all-knowing and, and all-kind and all-loving and all-merciful and all these things come to a dad? I mean, if you're a dad, you can just kind of think about this for a second. I have, I have two sons, and just to think that God, who's all-perfect, would ask me, to take one of my sons and offer them as a sacrifice. How could he do this? Um, we think this kind of request in and of itself. If we didn't know that it came from this unbelievably remarkably perfect God. We would say the person that asked that is just some kind of malevolent, malicious, um, wrong, terribly misguided kind of person that would ask someone to do that. How can God ask a father to give a son And I think the best thing that we can do instead of kind of dwell inside that one question is to take one kind of big step back and look at all of history and ask this better question is how could God offer his innocent son as a sacrifice for wretched sinners? And we see that as the real big question that God himself is doing, and is going to do, exactly what he's going to ask Abraham to do, and he's actually going to stop. All along, we can see the faith of Abraham that God's going to provide. We see, and even the author wants us to not be so, like, hard-pressed and, and like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm going to be all nervous the whole time. The author, Moses, right there in verse 1, wants to put you at ease when he says, God tested Abraham. So, So that as we read it, you know, we're not in Abraham's shoes, and maybe we're kind of, Abraham's like, oh, is this going to happen? But the author doesn't want you to feel like Abraham exactly. He wants you to, at the very beginning, say, God tested. Okay, something's, okay, something's, you know, going to happen here because it's a test. And so the better question that we can ask ourselves then is, how could God offer up an innocent son as a sacrifice for wretched sinners? And we know that the answer to that is because that he loves us. He deeply loves us. And so what I want to do is, as, as we go through this, just kind of make some comments along the way and show you four key aspects. Um, and the bigger goal, as we're talking about God's provision, which we know is kind of the main point of the text, is show how all this points to Christ. So look at verse 1. It says, after these things. We know that means there's a big transition in the text. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son. We're going to see that refrain, your only son, a few more times. You can see it um, also in verse 12. I think it's verse 12 where he says your only son. Another time in verse 16, your only son. Um, that's uh, echoed as the New Testament writers kind of are familiar, very familiar with the Old Testament. They, they, they'll echo this same kind of thing as, they, as the, they talk about Christ, his only son. Just to point back there and say that story about Abraham and Isaac is really... Shown to be true. Um, the whole point is about Jesus. And so you take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice. The idea here of a burnt sacrifice means that there would be a a complete consum, or consuming of whatever is offered. Like completely burnt, completely gone, nothing remains whatsoever. Offer him as a burnt sacrifice um, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early. I mean, obviously, just if you... We know that's a test, but if you did insert yourself into the narrative and you're thinking like Abraham, um, he probably didn't get much sleep that night. He's very nervous, and so, of course, he gets up early. But we also see quick, act, quick acts of obedience on Abraham's behalf. He, he has a deep trust in God. God's been providing for him since he came to him in Genesis 12, and he's been, he's been actively showing. Now, in seminary and preaching class, um, Jack can attest to this. You never, ever are supposed to say... Um, hey, look at the faith of so-and-so. So have faith like so-and-so. They try to tell you not to preach like, um, as people as examples, although I think you can do that. Um, but here, I, it would be easier to just say, so have faith like Abraham, just like Abraham, although that's maybe not the main point of the text. The main point of the text is provision. But here we do see um, a model in, in some ways that when God does ask somebody to do something, that he trusts him. He believes, he has a deep, deep trust in God. So the first aspect of the provision that I want you to see, four keys in understanding this provision is trust. So I just, I'm trying something new here. I'm just going to put one word so you don't have to do a whole lot of writing. You can just remember the outline really, really simple. There's actually more than in mine than just trust. But the first thing I want you to think about as we're talking about provision is that God is calling us to trust him. Trust him with our lives, trust him with everything, Because we're talking about God. We're not talking about some flawed, sinful person. We're talking about the perfect creator of all things. The one that knows you better and loves you more than you could ever conceive or imagine. One of the things that we need to understand about his provision in our lives. And the provision of his son. Is that he wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe him. Believe in him. And to believe him. Believe his character. Believe his nature. Be willing to... Um, do the things that he asked. Quick obedience, which we're coming up to, where we see in verse 3, he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went up to the place which God told him. And so we can see very quick trust, um, very deep trust that Abraham has in God. When God asks him to do something, he's going to do it. Um, I think that, Let's keep going to verse 5. It says, on the, third day, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So he knows this is where God's calling me to come to. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. Now this is just very interesting language that Moses, as he's telling the story, tells us. He says, first, he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship. Now, we don't need to import too much because the idea of offering sacrifices is, is, is considered worship. In this, in this idea. So the, they're going over there to offer the sacrifice, which is a form of worship. But then watch this. Watch the trust of Abraham being um, shown to us in the text. And he says, and then come again to you. Now, the way that Hebrews constructed, it says, I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then, in other words, we're going to go over there and worship. And after we do that, I and the boy are also going to come back again. So he already spo- knows he's supposed to go offer his son as a sacrifice. But even as he's telling these two other young men, we're both going to go up there and worship. And then we're both going to come back again. And we'll be back here afterwards. So we can see there's even more trust, big act of trust that Abraham has. Now, what is it that Abraham's thinking is going to happen? And that's the kind of a big question then. If, he's, if he knows he's supposed to sacrifice his son... He knows that God's asking him to do that. He knows he's supposed to offer him. And so what is it that he's thinking God's going to do? Well, um, amazingly, the writer of Hebrews, whoever you might think that might be, tells us in chapter 11, he tells us exactly what Abraham is is thinking here. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and you look at verse 17 and following, just 17, 18, 19, um, the writer of Hebrews... By um, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so we don't need to go too much into there. If we want to know what's going on in Abraham's mind, the only hope we have is in Hebrews 11, um, because this guy has been guided by the Holy Spirit as he's writing. He has divine inspiration to know what's at least in some parts going on in the mind of Abraham as he tells these two guys, the boy and I are going to go up the mountain and then in worship, and then we're going to come back down, both of us again. What's he thinking is going to happen? What kind of trust does he have? Look at verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac. And, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. And here it is. This is, this is exactly what Abraham was thinking. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Talking about Isaac from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham, at that moment, as he's walking up, is thinking to himself, even if I have to do it, God is able to raise him from the dead. Now, the writer of Hebrews has the benefit of looking at the cross and seeing that as the the amazing kind of, not, not a shadow, but the actual reality, the truth of everything. And he's looking back through that lens of the cross and saying, Abraham thinks that even if he has to go through it, Because God was able to raise Jesus from the dead, the writer of Hebrews is saying he could even do that with Isaac. He can raise his son from the dead if he has to. And so Abraham, as he's walking up, the writer of Hebrews tells us, we're going to come back because, I mean, even if I have to do it, God can just raise him from the dead. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about that. That is amazing trust in God. Do you have this kind of trust in your God? That whatever he asks you to do, whatever he asks you to do, you know that he's going to come through. Even he's going to raise him from the dead. I mean, I'm not saying go home and, you know, tie your kid up to something and and go through this thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but whatever it is that God's asking you to do, do you have this kind of unbelievable modeled faith that well, whatever he's asking me to do is going to be fine? Here, Abraham says, even he can raise him from the dead. And this is amazing faith. So go on to verse 6 here. Um, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And so this isn't the the actual offering yet. This is before they get it there. Takes all the wood, puts it on Isaac. Um, Calvin says he gives Isaac the heavier stuff to carry. And then he just kind of carries the other thing. So he puts all the wood on his son Isaac. So we know that if Isaac's able to actually carry wood, he's not some, you know, two-year-old kind of meddling about. He's, He's strong enough that he can carry wood up a hill. And so, well, we'll get to that in a second. He's strong enough to carry up wood up, up, up a hill, and it says, and he took the fire and the knife with him. So he's carrying the easy stuff; gives Isaac the hard job. So they both of them they went up together. So now they're walking up there, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, "My father," he said, "Here am I, my son." He said, "Behold the fire, and the wood." He's putting it all together. All right, we got the fire, we got the wood, we got the knife. Don't have the animal. Where's the old animal? Um, hey, Dad, we got everything. <laughs> We're missing one thing. Where, where's the animal? Um, can you just imagine? Uh, uh, one of the commentaries says, as, as Isaac looks to his dad and says, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? One commentator says that this question heightens the anguish that Abraham is feeling, and it cuts his heart like a knife. Because right now, he's He's not sure. He just trusts God, but he doesn't know what else is going to happen yet. And so he's he's feeling anguish. Now, the writer doesn't want you to feel this anguish. That's why in verse 1 he said he tested him. But still, it's it's a very moving kind of dramatic story as we're moving along. We're like, what's going to happen? We we already know. I know we all stood and read it. But the whole point that Moses is trying to make us feel is, what's going to happen? He's asking this question. Oh, my goodness. And Abraham's got to answer him. Um, so he goes into verse eight and he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering my son. Now, it's easy for us to just say, oh, he's talking to a kid. He doesn't want the kid to be scared. So he just kind of gives him the little Quick, kind of white lie answer. Oh, everything's going to be fine, son. You don't have to worry. As he's bounding him to the wood and kind of sticking him on there, you know, squeezing the lighter fluid. Everything's fine, you know. Like, so it's not that kind of question. What The commentators were, were all quick. Calvin was really quick to point out that we shouldn't think of these words as some kind of white lie just trying to calm Isaac down. Instead, we should read this, and I think it's the right way to read it, as a demonstration of Abraham's confident expression of trusting god he's not just trying to say it's okay isaac everything's fine uh you know we we as parents shouldn't do that we shouldn't just lie to our kids to make them feel better because we don't want to have to answer a hard question that's just a side note we all should know that but that's not what's going on here moses isn't wanting us to even come close to thinking that as he's writing this instead he's wanting us to again see this confident expression of abraham that he has a deep 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 trust in God and that He is willing to obey what God asks Him to do. So, we first provision, or the first thing that we see or aspect aspect in understanding God's provision was trust. The second song is obey. Now, that that didn't come out like intentionally. We're not going to sing Trust and Obey, the old hymn later on. Um, But that's, that's the second one is that we need to obey what God asks us to do. Obey every single detail. Obey when things don't make sense. Obey whenever it seems to be a gut-wrenching act that we don't even know how we're going to do it. Whatever it is, if it's, you know, name it. We should be willing to do it. Trust God that he is going to be and remain who he says he is. All good, all powerful, omniscient, and is going to take care of us. And whatever he asks us to do in your particular life, whether it's go to a different country to be a missionary, speak the gospel to your neighbor, take that job, whatever, you need to obey. God is asking you to trust Him and obey what He says. Verse nine, so it says, when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham then began to build the altar. Now you can still kind of think about Isaac in this situation. This is still really happening. This this isn't just some fake story. This is still a real story. There's the knife. There's the fire. There's the wood. What's going on? And so when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and then it says and laid the wood in order, and then bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So it just, the narrative just moves quite fast. You know, you're, you're sk- you feel like you're skipping some stuff, right? Wait a second. Um, you can't just say you just bound him to the wood and you keep going. How did that happen? Um, what was the conversation? Not important detail for Moses, right? Not important. Calvin, as he's looking at this, kind of notices this big, huge question that all of us are reading. We're like, uh... How did you just bound him? How did that happen? And he says, Moses doesn't want to necessarily talk about that. He wants to just move the drama along. He wants you to go fast through verse 9 to get, through ver- to, get to verse 10. Verse 10 is kind of the, the thing where it says, um, and Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. He wants to get to the point of the, the high pinnacle of climax. He doesn't want you to think about uh, necessarily, well, how did he bind him? But Calvin, he's looking at that and he says, I think this is, I think this is amazingly... Um, Prefiguring and pre Christ, this little thing that Calvin says. When he says about bounding him there, bounding Isaac, binding Isaac on the, on the uh, wood, we've already, Calvin says, we've already noticed that Isaac is big enough to carry wood himself up this big hill. As, you know, Abraham kind of takes the easy thing, knife and fire. Carry that wood, you're doing a good job. Um, it's your own wood. Uh, but anyway, as he's taking it up there, Calvin says if he's big enough to do that, then he's certainly big enough to overtake this old man that's going to have to do this work. And so what he says is that Isaac willingly lays himself down on the wood and just allows himself to be bound. Now, that's what Christ has done. There was no fight in Christ to put himself on the cross. There was no, dad, I can overtake you because I'm bigger than you now. And I can fight against this. We know in the, in the New Testament over and over that Christ willingly laid himself down. And he said, I could stop this any moment. I could just call all kinds of angels and just kill all of you if I want to. But that's not what's going to happen. Christ willingly lays himself down as the sacrifice. Just as we would say in the text, at least implicitly, we can say, as Isaac does. Isaac, in some ways, prefigures Christ by Willingly laying himself down as a sacrifice in obedience to his father. So he bounds him. And Abraham reached out his hand to take the knife. Verse 10. Reaches out his hand to take the knife. To slay or slaughter his son. But then the angel of the Lord called. So it's, it's... really like all the movies the action movies before action movies tried to you know give the bomb count down to 60 to 10 9 8 7 and right when it hits one all of a sudden they snip the right wire the blue wire or whatever you're like oh um before all that happened you know god already had that whole kind of worked out plot line god already got it so right whenever it's right here stop, stop. Okay. You know, like we hit one second and then everything's like, what, what is it? The suspense had built up and all of a sudden we see an angel of the Lord is calling out. Now, the angel of the Lord appears a few times in Genesis. This word angel can also mean messenger. Um, And most people think that as we see this angel of the Lord uh, that's showing up in the book of Genesis, that this is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. So Jesus, more than likely, shows up, in some kind of pre, pre-incarnate Christ form, and calls out from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, here, and he says, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now just notice all the language. An angel wouldn't say you're withholding your son from me. You'd say, I see you're not withholding your son from God. Right? But if this is pre-incarnate Christ, who is also God, that he has the right, to speak like this so more than likely this is the pre-incarnate Christ telling Abraham to stop don't do this um, that he's going to actually make a provision and he sees that he does have the faith that he's actually called for him to have by not doing this and he says I see that you fear God and you've not withheld your son your only son again that's just uh, that same kind of language showing to us again that's all prefiguring that God's not going to withhold his son, his only son. And then it says in verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. There's the provision right there. So all of the drama has happened. Finally, we need to know what's going to happen. The sacrifice is being called for. And then there's the ram. Calvin says that this ram is, quote, presented there by miracle. It's just all of a sudden, it just appears out of nowhere. There's a ram. Like, where'd you come from? You weren't making any noise, and all of a sudden, you're all caught in the, in the thistles. We're going we're gonna to take you now instead of him. So they go over there, and they take him. <clears throat> now, the ram also, like Isaac in some ways for us, has kind of prefigured Christ in some ways. The ram is as well. The ram is going to prefigure Christ by being the substitute. He is substituting himself as the ram prefigures Um, the substitutionary atonement that's going to be made or the substitutionary sacrifice that's going to be made instead of Isaac, thereby saving Isaac, thereby because Isaac is the line saving all of his people. The ram is the one that's kind of substituted to save God's people. Then Jesus is the one where he is substituted for us on the cross. And as he substitutes himself, he saves God's people because we are able to put our faith in Christ, because a payment now has been made for our sin. And Jesus now dies for us. And so the third thing I want you to see here then, um, and we're talking about the four aspects of God's provision, is that God has made a provision for sin. The third word is just provision. God has made a provision for sin. Now, this is so key. We say this all the time here. We try to be, as we say, Thoroughly gospel-centered as we can, but we don't need to miss this. This provision for sin, which is Christ, is not some kind of entry point into Christianity. And now that you've believed, you have to go try your hardest to stay a Christian. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that this provision, this substitution that Christ has made, is not only the entry point, but also the substitution of Christ on our behalf where we are now completely, completely declared righteous, completely forgiven, is also the basis by which we live out our Christian life. We live out our Christian life because we have already been, been declared righteous. God has already completely provided everything for our sin. So even your ongoing sins that you're going to have... The rest of your life. Now I know you don't want to. And I don't want you to. But we all know that we're all living in this intermediary process. Where we're being sanctified and we will one day be in heaven. And the point of this is that provision for that sin has also been made. So you don't have to fight in in a sense to think that I have to have a right standing with God. If I don't live out this Christian life perfectly. All of a sudden I'm not saved anymore. Instead just like you Trust Christ for for, for the provision of your sin at faith. You also continually, as you walk through your life... Trust Christ in that initial provision for sin. And all of your Christian life is just a reorienting yourself to the initial trust and provision that God has already made for all of your sin. So as you walk through sanctification, as you walk through coming more like Christ, you completely keep reorienting yourself to your justification in that God's already made provision for your sin and completely declared you righteous. So when you come, the whole point, I think, of week after week of coming to church and so that when you come here and you gather together with God's people, you don't need a list of rules of do's and don'ts. Instead, what I think all of us really want is someone to say, Christ has made a way for you. All your sins are forgiven. Please don't give me another list. I want the preacher to tell me what Christ has done for me. Remind me of the gospel. That's what I need to make it through this next week. Let me know that all of my sin now has been provided already and paid for by Christ on the cross. So, what we're seeing here, that the main point of the text is that God has provided by giving us Christ as a provision for sin forever. All your sins have been paid for. Provision for sin has been made. You are, if you're in Christ, completely, 100% righteous forever. Now, I'm not minimizing the fact that you're still supposed to try to kill sin in your life. Of course you are. But you do that. You do that by trusting that the provision has already been made. Christ, like this ram, has substituted himself for you on your behalf. And now you're in this most beautiful, perfect relationship with God. And that never will be broken. Never will be broken. So, the Lord has provided. The Lord has provided, which is the main point of the text. Look at verse 13. We look up. um, Verse 13. So Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went. And you can just imagine this elation that this father has. Yes! You're dying, boy! That's it. Isaac, you're fine. You get out of here. Just... (laughs) Raw, <laughs> Not Isaac. So you can just imagine. He's so happy that I'm killing this ram. I'm getting him good. Isaac, you can hop in. Lightning like, probably doesn't do that. But caught in a thicket by his horns and Abraham went, took the ram and offered it up as a burnt sacrifice instead of his son. Instead of his son. By this ram being substituted, thereby Isaac and all the people of God were saved, just like thereby God putting forward his son and him being sacrificed as a substitutionary atonement. All of God's people will be saved because of his death on the cross in verse 14 so Abraham called the name of that place here it is the Lord will provide the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided that's the, kind of the whole point of this this big po- point of the narrative here so um, there's a verse in John where Jesus is talking about this whole idea of what Abraham understood and didn't understand and The faith of Abraham. And I want to read it to you because I think this is pretty amazing. Um, Abraham understood a whole lot more than we think. We already know that he believed that... Well, I guess if I have to go through it, God will just raise Isaac from the dead. But he also says something else in John chapter 8. Jesus, um, in John chapter 8 verse 56, when he's having a conversation with the people who are the Pharisees at the time. In verse 56 he says, Your father Abraham... Rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Abraham, all the way back here in the Old Testament, had an understanding as the, the Abrahamic covenant was made in Genesis 12, and the reiteration or the, which is we're going to see here in verse 17 and following, um, where God com, you know, confirms the covenant again. Abraham, as he hears these covenants all throughout Genesis, as he keeps hearing it, realizes that there is a savior that's going to come. He's going to be a redeemer of everyone. So all these things that are happening are just showing us this main guy that's going to come and really kind of be the fulfillment of all these stories that we're hearing. And Abraham, as he looks forward to that, sees it, understands it, and it makes him joyful. It makes him glad. He rejoices in that coming day because as he looks forward, Abraham Susan understands that his only begotten son, Isaac, was a shadow of God's only begotten son. He understands that this lamb or this ram that was provided was a shadow of God's lamb, Jesus, that was going to be provided. And so it makes him joyfully happy as he looks forward. Um, And you can see here (coughs) that he says in verse 15, and then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said. So now we have the, the angel or... I think, the prefigured Christ coming to Abraham again and talking to him. Now, as most people kind of read this, um, a lot of commentators were saying that when, when people kind of teach this particular text, they always kind of stop there at verse 14 and they say, and there, there's the story. But they said, really, the story, the main point of the story continues in through 15 through uh, 20, Is it 19, 15 through 19. And if you leave verse 15 through 19 off, then you really miss the richness of all the blessings that actually comes to Abraham because of his obedience. And so you don't want to miss this amazing richness of blessing that's given to Abraham because of his obedience, and thereby, as we see here, the blessing that we are all partakers of as well. So... Let's, let's see the kind of the conclusion of the whole story where obedience happened, trust happened, obedience happened, provision was made. And since that happened, this great narrative ends with this amazing blessing. It says in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, <clears throat> by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. There it is again. As he says, your only son to us, um, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So imagine that. So he's looking at Abraham, who only has really one son of the promise, Isaac, and he tells him, I'm going to bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. I mean, just imagine if God, all the dads, if God said, you're going to have so many descendants that it will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It'll be as numerous as all the stars in the heavens, that's how many descendants you're going to have. You'd just be like, this is amazing. That's, that's a lot. I only have one son though. You know that, right? Um, but he's, he's telling, he's kind of restoring or reiterating the covenant that they've already made back in Genesis 12. So um, if you're unfamiliar with the first covenant that was made, let's just flip back and it's just about five pages to the left and look at Genesis chapter 12. This is um, Abram, just kind of walking through, doesn't know God, doesn't know anything, just just kind of a pagan guy. And God reaches down and decides to choose Abram and use him and bless him and say, I want you to be the father of my people. I'm going to create a new people called the Israelites, and you're going to be the father of them all. And he just chooses him out of his own free will. God says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this is, this is the major part of the covenant, in you, this means in your offspring, namely Christ, who is the descendant of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's a huge covenant that's made there, a promise that God makes right there with Abraham, and God just reiterates this covenant over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. And here he's doing it again. I'm, I'm affirming that covenant that I made with you back in Genesis 12. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to give you some more detail. As we're back over here in Genesis 20, chapter 22 and verse 17. He says, I will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore. So what we know as we have the benefit of looking from the New Testament back, that he's not just talking about... Um, sons and grandsons and grandsons and grandsons, but instead he's talking about spiritual sons because Christ is going to come in that line. And all of us, we're not Israelites, we're not Jewish, but all of us who have put our faith in Christ, we're now part of the family of Abraham, if you will. So his family is as numerous as the stars in the sky or standing on the seashore because Christians from every tribe and tongue now have joined this family of Abraham, and they're part of it. And so this this amazing promise that's being given to him is more than Abraham could even conceive at the time. It's it's abundantly more. So we can see it there in verse 17, and he says, and here's where it gets really good. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then 18, and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, um... We can keep reading, but the big idea that we see here in this section, 15 through 19, is blessing. That there is rich blessing um, in trusting God and putting our faith in him. And there's rich blessing in being a follower of Christ. So the fourth thing that you can see here is blessing. Um, But Paul, as he's looking at this idea here of, in verse 18, where it says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul, as he's looking at this, Helps us understand exactly what this means. So, in I'm sorry, in Galatians, chapter three, um, I want you to see this, and then we'll we'll conclude. In Galatians chapter three, verse sixteen, he says, "Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring." who is Christ. So here we see in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's getting real crazy about singular and plural words. He's like, it doesn't say offsprings. It just says offspring, it's singular. So he's really pushing that. You're like, Paul, what are you talking about? Why are you so crazy about this? It's because, as we flip back over here in Genesis chapter 22, um, when we read this in chapter 22, verse 18, 18, it says, and in your offspring, not offsprings, all the nations will be blessed. What he's not saying is all your descendants are all just going to be awesome and everybody's going to think they're awesome and there's just going to be a whole lot of them. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's looking he says, in your offspring, but he's not being real um, carefully particular with Abraham. But we know the singular nature of using offspring in verse 18 because Jesus is in the line of Abraham. He's being a singular person, as Paul says in 3.16, that it's Christ. And so what, this covenant that God's making in verse 18 then, it says, in your offspring, we can just put Jesus right there. In Jesus shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So, this offspring in verse 18 is just talking about Christ. How will all the nations of the earth be blessed in Christ? That's us. Like this pretty easy answer. We're all of all the nations. We're not Jews. We're not Israelites. We're, we're the pagan Gentiles that have been engrafted into the olive branch. So, We're all blessed because we have received eternal life. We have been blessed with eternal life because of Jesus. We are now part of the family of God. And so we receive the blessing of eternal life whenever we trust Christ. So since God has blessed us in Christ with all the spiritual blessings that we could ever conceive of, that we will receive in heaven. We talked about this last week, about just how extraordinarily beautiful and unbelievably mind-blowing heaven, be, heaven will be with all the perfections that will be present, with all the perfections of the art and all the perfections of our worship and, and just everything that will be there. Like we talked about this last week. That's the blessing that he's talking about. It's not just, as we would think, some kind of short-lived, 75-year-long, um, monetary earth blessing that we get here instead it's all about eternal eternal life it's about the eternal life and the eternal blessings that we'll receive the riches of eternal life we'll receive with god so as he tells them this blessing um it's good that we don't just kind of stop at 14 and we miss the, the greatest news of it all whenever we trust god and we obey and we put our faith in the provision of, of sin we receive the blessing of eternal life with christ forever so this whole story is about Abraham and Isaac and what he's asked. But more so, it's just a very beginning story. And as we're going to see, we can, there's, we're going to just do three more. But the whole Old Testament is full of them. Of how all these stories really prefigure or shadow the truer and better Savior, Jesus. Who fulfills every one's, one of these kind of stories that are happening in the Old Testament. So, in conclusion... This text prepares us for Christmas. It prepares us for the Advent season because it teaches us then to look forward to the coming Savior, just like Abraham. Abraham was looking forward to the coming Savior, and he was glad we should, during this Advent season, prepare ourselves and look forward. Now, I know he's already been born, right? I know that. But still, we're looking forward to the idea of the incarnation of God, God becoming man, being born as a baby and thereby, as being born as a baby, experiencing everything that we've experienced as humans and one day going to a cross. That's the whole point of Advent is just the anticipatory excitement that God himself would come down and become a man with one purpose in mind, to save sinners. And so this, this text is perfect because we can rejoice that God indeed, as we look at Hebrews 11 didn't just have the power to raise Isaac to life, but God had the power and actually did raise his own son to life after he was killed, thereby defeating every enemy against us, defeating Satan, defeating sin, and defeating death, and giving every single one of us eternal life. That's the beauty of Advent. That's the beauty of this coming Savior the true and better Messiah. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time that we have where we can look at your word, where we can hear and be reminded of maybe even some familiar stories from the Old Testament and see how all of them are about Christ, how every single one of them point to Jesus and not just that, but remind us of our absolute necessity to trust in you to believe in your provision that you've made for us in Christ. I pray for us all, God, as we continue in worship right now and really as we continue this whole week of walking through this week and preparing for Christmas and looking forward to the Advent season, that you would use this time to remind us of what Christ has done, that all of our hope and all of our desire and all of our worship would be pointed towards Jesus That no substitutes would be made. Things that are temporal. Things that are created. Would not be the things that we put our worship on. Instead the creator. Our God. Our savior Jesus. Would receive all the glory. I thank you that. Every story in the bible. Is about Jesus. And that if we look. Because we have the holy spirit in us. We can see that and we can rejoice that the Old Testament is not another testament. It's the same testament that God will make a way for sinners through his son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.